Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name's Hado and I too am an autodidact. Good well, to see you here on the flip-flop. Yes, you as well. Um, so today we've got a fairly short chapter, Hutto. Really what I think it is, is just setting up the rest of the book. It is. Um, it's a linking chapter, but it's still, it's short, not particularly sweet, but <laughs> full of good meat. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I found it slightly on the pointless side, but maybe you'll be able to illuminate me. Maybe I was missing something important. I think this is kind of the heart of the book, so let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I'm sure you're probably right. Um, I, I, I went through the chapter and it finished, and then I was like, so what have you told me? So, but yeah, then I thought, okay, it probably makes more sense when I've, when I've sort of got into the, the next stuff. Well, this is also what autodidacts are about. It's... Um, this is where we open our eyes and become illuminated to great truths. Yes, okay. So from a big picture, where we're at is that from a big picture perspective, commerce, i.e. money, empires and religion have created a single global community. Um, now, this was probably inevitable, uh, Harari thinks, but that's a different thing than saying that the particular type of global society we have reached was inevitable. Yeah. Um, things could have turned out a lot differently. Indeed. Um, just, I'm just pausing on that inevitable thing. Uh, he has identified reasons why the pressures moving us towards greater unification have had that result. Yeah. Yes. Um, but he's also very correctly said that, you know, just because these pressures are there doesn't mean it's it's a one-way street. You may have to be heading north, but there's a lot of different ways you could be heading north. Yeah, yeah. So so things could have manifested in a different way because of the same forces. Yeah. Um, so then he, he spends a bit of time talking about a thing called the hindsight fallacy, which is essentially the common psychological tendency for people to perceive events that have already occurred as having been more predictable than they actually were before the events took yes. place. Um, so history is actually more of a series of crossroads rather than an arrow. That's what he's saying. And what he's saying is that we are great rationalizers and I don't recognize the truth of that. We, we're terrific at justifying why we did the things we did. And psychology, a very different science, has proven that we are making up justifications. These were not, in fact, the reasons why we did things because they change certain parts of an experiment. Mm. So, you know, they introduce a product or something and everybody says, you know, great. And then they say, why did you pick that product? And they tell you things. Then they change things a little. For example, the most obvious one is uh, where they put the same woman on a dating site in various different coloured dresses. Yeah. And it was found that she got 17 more, 17% more responses from men when she was wearing the red dress. Okay. The only difference in the dress and everything else about her was the colour. But that one change resulted in a lot more responses. But no, none of the men, when asked why they picked that woman, referred to the colour of the dress. Yeah. They did not know that it impacted their decision in any way. Yeah. Okay. Now, interpreting history goes much the same way. We've got great ways for rationalising what happened. It's got probably not a lot to do with the real why. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. So it, it's a lot easier for history and historians to explain how things happened the way they did mm. rather than why. Mm. Um, so the more you know about history, the harder it tends to be to explain why one course of events took place rather than any one of a myriad of other possibilities. And that, I think, is one of the, the big statements he's made in this book. The more you know, the less predictable you see things as being. Yeah. It is only the ignorant who think things are simple. Yeah. Those who actually know their subject know that it's anything but. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well put. So he's gone as far as to say that it's in a, an iron law of history, which he doesn't say very often. Mm, and the iron law, this iron law of history is what looks inevitable in hindsight was far from obvious at the time. Yes. Um, and I think a good way to, to illuminate that is to look at, rather than look, at, look back at ancient Rome and say, well, the rise of Christianity was inevitable, you know, in mm. retrospect, or the fall of Rome was inevitable in retrospect. Mm. You look at it, as in what's going, what's happening today and what's going to happen in the future. And then all of a sudden things get a lot trickier to, yeah, to, to figure out. Absolutely. So some of today's questions are, will China become the world's superpower? Indeed. Uh, will we face ecological disaster or a technological paradise? Yeah. And will fundamentalist monotheism dominate the world more and more? Well, they're very good questions. They are. In fact, I just realised I should have put them in the unanswerable questions, but I didn't, so you're off the hook there, Hutter. I am very grateful to be <laughs> off the hook and because uh, I obviously need to polish my crystal ball a, a whole lot more before I tackle some of those. But, yeah. um, there are, of course, simple answers to them. Yes, no, and yes. Or sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, well, I was going to say the answers are simple. And we'll all know them in a thousand years' time. Yeah, exactly right. And we'll and we'll think that they were, yeah, you know, that was incredibly obvious. We always knew that in, was going to happen. Indeed, and I wonder how we didn't know it at the time. Um, the other thing coming out of this is the inevitable rise of Christianity in Rome, for example, which mm. clearly was not. But yes. We can explain why it was inevitable, and there have been lots of books written on that. And the only small flaw, of course, is that they all say different things. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So whenever you find people saying something was inevitable, and then you find half a dozen different reasons why, you know that something's not right. But that goes to historians being able to describe how things happen, yes. but not necessarily why. Absolutely. So a good example is that. In October 1913. And there's a lot going on that you don't know, and then all of a sudden, bang, it explodes. That's right. Yeah. Um, now, that's what happens with avalanches and volcanoes. They yeah. are level one chaotic Yeah, systems. it only takes one flake of snow <laughs> to actually tip off the avalanche. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, if you had suggested in 1935 that Israel would be declared by the United Nations to be a country again... Yeah. Very few people would have thought you were on the right yeah. planet. This um, makes me think of chaos theory, where a butterfly flaps its wings in yes. Australia and you get a tornado in Argentina. Yeah, well, it, it um, is. And, 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 and that's, I'm making a connection here, yeah. because it turns out that history is actually a, a chaotic system. That's and we'll, we'll, exactly we'll right. talk about that in yes, more exactly right. a second. Um, so many people would prefer history to be deterministic, um, and this is appealing because it implies that the world and our beliefs are inevitable, uh, i.e. 
we live in a world that makes perfect sense and it was always going to happen. That's one aspect. The second aspect, of course, is predictability also brings security. Yeah. It also feeds into this idea, you know, we, we have a lot of paradigms, memes, whatever that we try to put out there, you know, stuff like uh, if you work hard and diligently and do your job well and are a law-abiding citizen and uh, pay all your debts and are loyal to your state, then you will do well. Yeah. Um, now, the reality is history is chaotic and the future is chaotic and none of that holds true. Yeah. Um, everything comes and goes and this is why we have religion so people can pray and make sacrifices and hopefully tip the scales in their favour. Yeah. Because if just working hard and solidly and diligently did the trick, mm. we wouldn't need all these other... <laughs> yeah, yeah. The way I see it manifest the most in my life is um, what I call the it could never happen here mentality. Right. So we live in a fairly, you know, we live in a stable democracy, fairly wealthy, and, you know, life's fairly good here. And if you start chatting about... Um, politics or war or what have you with a person, they're, they're kind of fairly apathetic to the whole thing because they're like, ah, oh, nah, it'll never happen here. Right. And you're like, mate, history is full of people that have said it'll never happen here. Um, Very you know, you've got to guard democracy, for example. You've got to guard it jealously. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think, having said that, I feel a bit the same. I feel like democracy is solid here and yeah. I don't feel like it's in danger. But, you know, you, you can't, you've got to be careful. And... I think our American friends are discovering that a little bit now. I mean, you know, I, I spend a bit of time on Twitter following what's going on over there, and um, a lot of Americans are worried for the for the future of their democracy and the future of their country. And you know, maybe it's been building up for a long, 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 long time, but it feels like it's just exploded in the last, you know, th well, particularly this year, but in the last three or four years, you know, it's it feels like you know. If we write the history of this in 500 years' time, we'll look back and, and you know, talk about this moment as a real turning point, I think. Yeah, it could well be. Um, one of the other things I like doing as an autodidact is I set aside past newspaper articles and stuff like that. Right. I just store them on a, a hard drive, which is easy to do these days. I used to, have to cut them out, etc. And then 20 years' time, I go back and I read what they were saying at the time. Yeah. And then, so when you're coming up to a global financial crisis or something, yeah. and, you know, we've currently got a COVID crisis going on, I go back and see, well, what were they saying about that just before it happened? Yeah. And you see the same old stuff happening yes. all the time. Yes. Um, we'll see some more of that when we get on to the ascent of money, but the when you see the same arguments being trotted out for why this could never happen and you know of course that then it did happen yeah and then you're seeing the same argument turning up today saying why this could never happen it worries you <laughs> yeah i see i see history get getting rewritten as well so the opinion of these so-called experts is not necessarily correct and i think you get a better insight into that when you're very knowledgeable about a topic yourself i used to be very into australian politics i followed it closely and you'd read a history of a prime minister's sort of um, leadership and they'd be saying oh he was this and he was that and he did this and he did that and you'd be like no that's not how it happened like when you were on the ground at the time yes. it wasn't like that at all yeah and I, I do get that feeling I, I do like history and I, I read quite a bit of history but I I do get that feeling that I don't think this is actually how it was but it, there's something relaxed it's almost like fiction to me when I'm reading it you know so there's something I find relaxing about it because 
in a sense, there's nothing I can do about it now anyway, and I can just sort of read what happened. But you're looking at things from such a macroscopic view, like Cyrus, for example. We talk about, you know, Cyrus did this and Cyrus did that. Well, Cyrus is probably blundering around, you know, making all the same mistakes that everybody makes. I don't know. I can't. I wasn't there, and I wasn't wasn't his main advisor. But um, you know, when you, when sometimes when you read um, accounts of the decision making process behind closed doors, you know, like say Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill together in a room, a lot of the time they're just three guys like trying to figure it out. Yes, you know what I mean. They're not these like no, you no. know, Denny gods that have got it all figured out. Yes, I yeah, completely agree. And I also, uh, my mother was a historian. She had an honours degree in history back in the oh, days. Oh, really? That I didn't know that. Counted for something, yes. Um, they made me take a choice in my education. I was given the option of studying chemistry or history, but not both, um, for my O-levels. And, uh, of course, my mother was a historian and my father was a pharmacist, so yeah, I really right. loved that choice. Yeah, and they're, they're not exactly um, compatible subjects in a no, sense. No, I wanted to study both and I was good at both. Yeah. Um, instead, they wanted to shove loads more languages down my throat, which was never going to stick in my head. Mm. Um, anyway, that's, that's an irrelevancy. The, but I did... My period of history that I spent some time on was World War II, yeah. particularly European World War II. And I would talk to my mother about what was happening in World War II. She'd actually lived through it. Yeah. And she argued with me and said it wasn't like that, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The interesting thing was, after about 20 years, and I'd actually got her to read some of the books I was reading, et cetera, she said, well, I have understood one thing, which is that simply living through it does not, in fact, enable you to understand what you're living through. No, I agree with that, because you, you tend to see it from one point of view yes. rather than a holistic point of view. Um, an example that comes to my mind is people, uh, particularly in the 90s and 2000s, they would look back at the 80s as some roaring decade where everyone was just throwing around $20 bills and we were all rich and all this. Well, I lived in the 80s and we weren't. That's not... <laughs> That's well, funny, that's not how I remember the yeah. 80s either. So, <laughs> and so I think nostalgia uh, comes into a lot of this stuff as good, well. Good point, yes. I, I just read a foreword by Dan, Dan Simmons, um, and it's talking about the loss of childhood. But what it's really talking about is the loss of the sort of childhood he had. Yeah. Um, yes, there's lots for him to have been moan the loss of, but I get the feeling that when we talk to the millennials, in 30 years' time, they'll be regretting the loss of their yeah. childhood that their children aren't getting. Yeah, and the, and the clash between the generations, the generation gap. I think that happens every generation. Yes. Blames the one below them for their problems and vice versa. Yes. Okay. So, history is chaotic. And in fact, it's a level two chaotic system, Hato. So, yes. So... What that means is you can have a level one chaotic system, which means that essentially it's difficult, if not impossible, to predict. And a, and a good example of, of that is the weather. Yes. So the butterfly flaps its wings in, uh, in uh, you know, Europe and, and there's a cyclone in the United States or what have you. That's, you know, pretty difficult to predict. Yes. But that's only a level one chaotic system. History is a level two chaotic system, which means that a system actually reacts to the predictions that are made about it. Yes. So... Um, and a good example of that, I think, is is the market. So, uh, for example, you know, if everybody if everybody in the world knows that the price of oil is going to one hundred dollars tomorrow, 
then it won't go to $100 tomorrow. It'll go to $100 today. Absolutely. (laughs) And then we don't know what price it's going to be tomorrow. So you've added another layer of complexity. And the market is constantly, you know, fear and greed and, you know, trying to anticipate... This is where game theory stats come into it. Yes. Not only are you trying to predict the system, you're trying to predict what everyone else's predictions is going to be as well. Absolutely. Now, again, we'll see some more of that with people like George Soros in the Ascent of Money. Um, but the, this is this is stuff that's big in my... Yeah, you, you love this kind of stuff. I love it. You're a game theory man. I am. You're a chess player. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't make me the most successful. I mean, I don't know playing A grade, but nothing. My dreams of becoming a grandmaster were basically frustrated by my lack of ability. (laughs) (laughs) What a bummer. Um, Now, political revolutions apparently are um, almost by definition unpredictable because, and that's because a predicted revolution never actually erupts. Correct. It's like the shark that bites you is always the one you didn't see coming. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if a leader knows for sure that a revolution is going to take place, then usually he will take steps to avert that revolution. Yes. And thereby, therefore, prevent the revolution from happening in a lot of cases. I think a good example of that in my life was the Y2K problem. So, you know, we we needed to change a lot of computer programs to reflect four digits in the year instead of two or... Planes were going to fall out of the sky, and everything you know it was yep. going to be it was going to be the end of civilization, and it never happened. And everyone said, "Oh, well, that was you know that was a bit pathetic." But I never felt like that because millions and billions of dollars were spent fixing that problem. Yes, and it was essentially averted. Yes, uh, I think that's very true. And we've never we've never been able to compute how bad it would have been if we hadn't done. Well, that. that's right. Um, but it was not a non-event. We found enough things in the correction processes, because I was actually part of that. That would have been disastrous. Uh, <laughs> that really made you think, you know, you've got four identical x-ray machines at the hospital, but yeah. one of them had a chip in which would have made it cease to operate, yeah, yeah. and the other three would have been fine. And yeah. until we started doing the research, no one had But the man on the street only reacts to things that happen, not to things that don't happen. Yes. And this is where, this is where it's tricky, because that man has a vote. That's right. And this is where our, um, our press is, in my opinion, does a very bad job. Because the press, although it supposedly is the fourth estate and it's an essential pillar of democracy, because how can voters vote unless they know what's going on? Mm. What the press is actually about is trying to sell newspapers or clickbait. Well, that's the thing. They've got, other, they've got other incentives. Correct. So therefore, they tell us about the disasters and every time the government screwed up, Every time the government does a good job, you'll be lucky to even find anything on page 50 about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I see good government being greatly penalised by this mm. because good government is one of which... It's uneventful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so nobody gives them any credit for that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And even even in your career and things like that, you know, yes. as an, in an IT career, you know... Uh, you know, I was doing best when no one knew I was there, yes. which is not a great way to get a pay rise. No, that's right. The squeaky wheels and all that. Yeah. I, I was told back in my early days at Hills Industries that, you know, 
if you want to go ahead, you have to create a problem and then fix it to great fanfare. <laughs> in a, yeah, in a very visible yeah. way. If you just do your job well every yeah. day. You'll I, mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're sitting here kind of almost complaining that that's the way it is, but probably even better for us is to just accept that's the way it is, that's the way it's always going to be and, you know, and, and sort of act accordingly. Nobody knew the Bolsheviks would rule Russia ever let mm. alone in four years. Indeed. Time. If you'd said that, you know, well, obviously the Bolsheviks will be coming to power, <laughs> everyone would have looked to you and said, where did you get that from? It was probably like 50 nutjobs. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, and, um, yeah, that, that, that's a bit scary what a precipice history can, uh, can change on. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, there's a whole, whole bunch of things like that. Bowie gives us some, uh, but, you know... The Berlin Wall coming down. Um, yeah. Who saw that coming? Yeah. You know, that the Soviet Union would just disappear in a puff of smoke without even yeah, a war. that's another good example. Um, yeah. And, you know... Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of forces building up. Under so history is not a means for making accurate predictions. Indeed. You know, that's the, that's the bottom line. And, um, you know, that's interesting because sometimes historians are looked to to kind of say, hey, what's going to happen now? Yeah, now the interesting thing, point made in your scent of money, I'm pushing this book we're going to be doing, okay. um, but he makes the point that there is a big difference between economics and economic historians as against all the other historians. Okay. And Harari is clearly in the all the other camp here. Yeah, right. In you saying that you don't use history to make predictions, we use history to understand what's happened, but not to, therefore, change policy, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But in point of fact, what the economic historians are saying is, that's exactly why we study economic history. We study the Great Depression to work out how to stop it happening again. Economic historians are always trying to pick out what is the lesson of history and then make a new theory coming out of it to make sure it never happens again. Does it turn out that that's a bit of a fool's errand then? Is that impossible to do? Well, this is a very interesting question. Um, the success record is far from absolute. Yeah. But at this stage, we have not yet had another depression as bad as the Great Depression. Mm. We have learned lessons from One of the ways they respond to the Great Depression was everybody cut their spending, which yes. is the absolute worst thing you can do that's in That's exactly right. Yeah. And they said, you know, even when they we were doing the Roosevelt New Deal doing a bit of pump priming. Yeah. We did it at, you know, about 10% of the level it should have been Yeah, done and then World War Two basically. Well, was that's the, right, was it's the... what lifted us out, yeah. 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 Um, or lifted America out anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and they've been sailing, they've been sailing on, that, uh, on that wake for the last, you know, 70 years. Mm, a lot of truth in that. Mm. So, uh, history's choices are not made for the benefit of humans, Hutto. Um, human well-being doesn't inevitably improve as history rolls along, even though it seems like it. Absolutely. It, it seems like it, yeah, from where I'm sitting. Yeah, it's, um, it's so easy to put on our glasses and say things had to go this way. Things progress. So you, yes. you, were, you were using the word progress a lot uh, in our last podcast when... I thought you should have been using unification. So Harari doesn't talk about the era of progress. He talks about the era of unification. That's true. Yeah. Um, that, right, there's two things. One is, if you are moving along a trend, then you are progressing. Yeah. And the 
direction of the arrow and the progress we have made is that we have clearly been moving towards increasing unification. Mm. But there is a second thing which has come in very largely as a result of the last five centuries, um, which is that change is good, that progress is good, that mm. progress should be welcomed. Yeah. Now, I've got a big question mark over that mm. because uh, that's a value judgment mm. that, you know, we lost childhood but we've we've come to, you know, this wonderful new world of bright toys and DVDs and whatever. Yeah. Um, it's far from clear that we are progressing to something better and this is the point that Harari is making here as well. Mm. Um, progress does not mean improvement. This idea that all change should be welcome. No, all change has a cost. Mm. Whether the benefits are greater than the cost is a value judgment. Yeah. Um, so when I use the word progress, I do mean, yes, we're progressing along a trend line. I do not mean things are getting better and better. Mm. That's a whole separate evaluation. Yep. So, so Harari sort of draws a comparison between um, history and biology because he's saying that cultures can be seen as as we can see them as parasites uh good or bad right that infect all people and infect everybody thereafter who are infected by them right and this approach is sometimes called nemetics mm -hmm. um so cultural change or revolution is based on the replication of cultural units known as memes so memes is a word that we use all the time now for internet yeah. uh, pictures and videos, but it was actually coined by Richard Dawkins in the 90s, who's a who comes from a biology background. Yes. Um, and Harari is using that term kind of in, in cultural sense yes. as well. So successful cultures are the ones that excel in reproducing their memes rather than in the benefits that that culture has for yes. humans. Yes. So you could be a terrible culture, but if you're really good at reproducing Correct. that meme, yeah. then you're going to be successful. Yes. So we're talking things here like uh, individualism, consumerism, things like this. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking the other day about how Jews managed to maintain their identity despite yes. the pressures not to. And, you know, you can argue that's a good thing, but, you know, it's not necessarily. They just happen to have a culture that reproduced itself and was very successful in doing so. You know, whether it was good or bad is irrelevant yes. um, to whether it's successful or not. I'd, I'd just take one issue with you there, which was that I don't think it's fair to say they just happened to have a culture. Right back when they came back from Babylon, they tried to design a culture to do exactly that. I think you could probably say that. Yeah, well, okay, okay. We, we can probably split no, hairs it's, on it's, that. It's been heavily knocked around since then and all the rest of it, but yeah, it's one It's one of the fascinating things. So this comes up, we'll talk about this a bit more because it comes up in our unanswerable questions and I have a feeling that our... Um, I have a feeling that our opinions are going to differ on it. Okay. And you've just discovered that question. You didn't know it was there. Oh, you know, yeah, that's all right. I'll, I'll help you through your answer. Don't worry. <laughs> but I'll, keep, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you zero right away so you won't have to stress <laughs> about trying to get it right. <laughs> so the most you can get now is, is two out of three. <laughs> oh, he hasn't started to introduce the negatives yet. Well, I think, I think, I'm, I think I'm going to have to... Um, I think it's time for some imaginary numbers this week, oh, so right, I'll see how we right. go. <laughs> so all of this stuff that we're talking about is related to postmodernism, which is a topic that I find fairly difficult to understand, and I'm, I'm certainly no expert, expert, 
Bert in. Well, I'm certainly going to need to do a bit more reading if I'm supposed to explain that one to yeah, you. Yeah, well, well, maybe we'll do a book on postmodernism at that, some stage. That would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think postmodernism is a classic example of the more you know, the less you know. <laughs> um, but postmodernism uses a similar type of thinking to this mimetics or meme type um, explanation. But they speak about discourses rather than memes. Yes. So, for example, postmodern thinkers consider nationalism to be a deadly plague. Yes. It, it's presented as being beneficial to humans, but it has been mainly beneficial to itself. Indeed. So this is all related to game theory as well. And, what, and one of my unanswerable questions is to explain the prisoner's dilemma. So, yes. So Harari doesn't uh, mention the prisoner's dilemma, but I think that's a good explanation of game theory. Yes. So I'll get you to give me an eloquent explanation of it for a mark. Uh, oh, a mark? <laughs> yeah, that's right. A whole mark. I might, I might give you a silver star. Um, so pattern... Game theory is essentially patterns of behaviour that are costly to all players, nevertheless tend to take root and spread. Yes. Um, for example, arms races lead yes. to no real benefit and countries becoming bankrupt. We'll talk about it, that under the whole concept of game theory and prisoner's yes. dilemma. And... and we'll get to that very soon. An arms race, much like a gene, does not have a conscious intent but it spreads anyway due to complex underlying dynamics. Mm -hmm. I'm going to introduce a new word for that one. Okay. So um, that's essentially the chapter, and this is all essentially a leading to the next section of the book, which is the final section of the book, I believe, which is the scientific revolution. Yes. Um, so before we get into unanswerable questions, was there something you wanted to say? Because some of this postmodernism and nomadics and and uh, game theory you know it's uh, i mean I, I sort of went through it i i i wasn't 100 percent sure why harari was making such a big deal out of it i figured it might have come into context later on but right. what, what are your thought what are your general thoughts about the chapter okay <clears throat> this is a big picture book it's a the satellite view of history yeah and what harari is identifying here uh, i think some of the most profoundly fundamental drivers of all human behavior, which is, the word I'm going to introduce is compulsor. We're familiar with the word compulsory. Yeah. We're familiar with the idea that you have to do things because someone has made a law or someone in authority has said it's compulsory for you to do this. Yes. But we don't actually have a word for what makes something compulsory. Yeah. So I've introduced the word compulsor. Okay. Um, now, we talked a little bit about the um, things God makes as against things like mathematics, which seem to be part of the fabric of reality. Mm. Game theory is part of mathematics. It's mm. part of the fabric of reality. Mm. And it creates, it's the compulsor for a lot of behaviours. Yes. Such as survival of genes, selfish genes, as Richard Dawkins wrote the book, which we might we might do that. Yeah, that, that's on our list, actually, yeah. the selfish gene. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the selfish gene. Genes are about survival within a competitive environment, um, the biological, biosphere, competitive environment. The 
ones we've been talking about here, memes, of being competitive within a, compet a social environment. Mm. Um, we can also talk about uh, some of the other... The, the arms race is, is another classic example, mm. uh, coming from... He who would have peace should prepare for war. Yeah. And he who would have war should prepare for war. Yeah. So you are therefore compelled to always be preparing for war. Yes. And fairly obviously, if you're spending more and more on preparing for war, there's a fair chance that wars can happen at some stage almost by accident. Yes, yes. You know, some archduke is going to get assassinated somewhere. Well, that's right. I was thinking of World War One when you said that, because that was almost a stumbling into war, because everyone was so fixated on the thing. That's right. Well, And we see this running constantly across economics and stuff like this. So much of the stuff we do, nationalism, etc., automatically, it locks us into behaving in particular ways. Yeah. Um, so it seems that reality is a compulsor for particular types of behaviour within competitive environments. Yeah. Um, this is not even something even God has created. Yeah. It is something that's part of the very fabric of the universe. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, yes, we'll look at prisoners' dilemmas, etc. But what Harari is saying here is that overriding everything in history is the fact that there are certain compulsions that make us behave in particular ways. Mm. If you've got nationalism with 200 nations on earth and you've got each one of them has their own government and their own military forces and they're all in a competitive area, both economically, socially militarily, etc., with other nations, it's pretty much inevitable what's going to happen. Now, at the level one chaotic system, which is your avalanche, you know an avalanche is going to happen, you just don't know exactly when. Mm. Your level two chaotic system, everybody's trying to outplay each other, but we're all locked into obeying the rules of the arms, arms race. Yeah. It may be... You know, what Peace is a wonderful thing. Mm. If we've got peace, then we can spend more money on education and health care and all these sort of things. So spending money to ensure peace is well worth doing. Mm. We could do that, for example, by helping the poor of other countries, by making them, to some extent, dependent on us for our loans and our gifts and our, all that sort of thing. We see plenty of that going on, China's belts, roads and belts and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the Marshall Plan that America put in place. Mm. But you can also say, if we all... OK, mutually assured destruction. We haven't had a war between nuclear powers in mm. 70 years. Why not? Because we've built these horrible arsenals big enough to destroy the world many times over. And yet it has provided with us with peace. So we can spend more on education. Oh, well, actually, we spent all that money on weapons. What a pity. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so that's what you're locked into. Yes. And at some stage, one fears that the missiles will fly anyway. Because, uh, again, as Arari says, big picture, when was the last time we did not have two major empires at war with each other for 70 years? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So would you like to get to the unanswerable questions now? I think it's time for unanswerable questions. Okay. Okay, so my first question to you, Hutto, and we've mentioned it a few times now, is can you please explain to me what the prisoner's dilemma is? Right. 
The prisoner's dilemma has now been adopted as a term for a wide range of game theory problems where the individual is inclined to behave in a way which is not in the best interests of himself or the group. In other words, there's a whole range of, of situations, we've talked about the arms race, where people behave in a way which is not in the best interests of themselves, yep. but they are compelled to do so. The yes. prisons of the Lemon is one. It actually started with uh, John Nash. Uh, John Nash is kind of the founder of game theory, mm. as those who watched A Beautiful Mind may have cottoned on to. Yeah, you've got to go for the ugly girls, not the good-looking one. Exactly right. Yeah, that's it's, what I learned from that movie. Well, <laughs> if, you, if you ignore the blonde, you hopefully score on the brunettes. Yes, that's right. Um, the, uh, it's actually, this particular one is known as Nash, the Nash Equilibrium, and the most common form of it, and we tend to see it on uh, the detective show's all the time on TV, is where you've arrested two criminals and you haven't really got a solid case against either of them. So what you're after is a confession. The two criminals are both saying, no, we weren't there, you know, whatever. And provided they stick to their story, yeah. you're not going to be able to, to get them. So all they've got to do is stick to their story. Yeah. So the first thing the police do is they separate them so they can't communicate with each other. Yes. Then they put them in rooms, say, hey, we know this. And then they say, and your mate in the next cell, he's telling us that you were the one that did it. And, you know, the moment he said that, then we'll have you and you'll spend the rest of your life in jail. Yeah. Unless you tell us first. <laughs> and so the interests of the two are now very different to the interests of the individual. Yes. The individual can get a free pass by spilling on his mate, yeah. but all he's got to do is sit tight and yeah. they'll both walk scot-free. If I, can I just give you yeah. some um, concrete numbers on that? So if A and B each betray, betray the other, yeah. each of them serves two years in prison, right. for example. If A betrays B, but B remains silent, A will be set free. Right. And B will serve three years in prison. Indeed. And it's the same vice versa. If yeah. A remains silent, but B betrays A, A will do three years and B will run free. Right. If they both remain silent, they'll both do one year. Yeah. So the most optimal solution for both of them is to remain silent. Yes. But the incentives are to yap. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I mean, probably what I should have asked you is, if you and I are in that, you know, if you were in that situation, what would you do? And I, I, I mean, I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably yap. Because no. it, because it, it's in your interest to yap. Well. It's in your perceived interest to yap, even though it's not true. You've already told us you're a collaborator, so we, we <laughs> There's various types of game which have been created around this sort of problem. For instance, there's, uh, you can have the game where Matt is offered $5,000 um, and all he has to say is, yes, I'll take it. But if he says no, let Huddo have the chance, it comes to Huddo, and Hado says, no, I don't want it either. At that point, you go into the next round, the $5,000 is doubled to $10,000. Yeah. And you go back to Matt. There are quiz games on television that are based around this. Exactly right. You see. Yeah. Now, so you get the thing where, from the viewpoint of the both of us, it's better off to just let it keep doubling and doubling and doubling. There's yeah. more and more money in the pot. Mm. But from the viewpoint of the individual, pull the trigger. Yeah. So Matt and I might then 
have an agreement that we're letting it up to $100,000. But how much do you trust Matt? Exactly right, yeah. you say. And you know I can't be trusted. That's right. And it also makes a big difference whether Matt and Hado can communicate with each other during the course of this thing. Yeah. Um, so that one's got more of an opportunity to convince Matt that I'm a trustworthy guy, I'd never let him down, and of course I'm not going to pull the trigger. And we see this in games like Survivor, etc. too. Yeah. Issues of trust and faith and belief and loyalty. Um, and uh, as Stalin put it, gratitude is a disease of dogs. I know Matt's done a lot for me in the past, but what's he done for me right now? Yeah. To me, the, the classic real-world dilemma that revolves around the prisoner's dilemma is the environment. Yes. So it's expensive for each individual country to mitigate their environmental uh, damage. Yes. And the, the, the argument that's often used is, well, hang on, China's not doing anything about it, America's not doing anything about it, so it's pointless for me to do it. And yeah. so, so it's in everyone's best interest for, someone to, to, for everyone to do yes. something about it. But the, indiv the in individual incentive for each nation state is, is, to, is to free ride. It's the free riders problem. Exactly right. Now, we see this as very normal in economics, yeah. where each capitalist enterprise doesn't want to bear the cost of cleaning up its own pollution. Yeah. Um, but it's also part of the arms race. You know, the, the story is if we could all simply agree not to have any wars, then we don't need any weapons. Yeah. Um, but trust... <clears throat> Yeah. and individual, the individual player's circumstance. And this is what I'm saying. This is, this is part of the nature of reality. Game theory is the fabric of reality. Now, you can change a lot of things about the type of weapons you've got and the, the nature of the creature. I mean, if we were all telepathic, that would change things. Imagine a world in which it was impossible to tell a lie mm. or where... Other parties automatically knew that you were lying. That would be very different. And that may be in some God's control. Mm. But the nature of game theory, the prisoner's dilemma, seems to be part of the nature of reality and can't be changed. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'll give you a tick for that. I think you did well. Uh, and I'd, I would have expected you to because this is the, this is, that's the sort of thing that you, you love. You love that stuff. Indeed, I do. But I'm starting to understand Matt's marking system here. I've got a tick, but I'll still get zero points <laughs> and probably a negative score. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the number of ticks I give you doesn't add up to the no. <laughs> Um My next question is, uh, well, Harari asks it throughout the course of the chapter, so I thought I'd throw it in. Why did the scientific revolution take place in Western Europe around 1500 AD? Right. Well, he is, of course, going to explain this to us in detail in the next he chapter. He is? Oh, yes. Because yes. his explanation in this chapter is, we don't know. Well, that's correct. <laughs> what he's going to explain in the next chapter is the how. Ah, yeah. And also, in a very real sense, you're going to have, uh, when we look at the ascent of money, we'll get some significantly more insights into okay. the way credit works. We'll get, we'll get, don't give us a long answer on this then if the next chapter's uh, a okay. lot about it. Well, the simple answer is the Western world cottoned on to the idea of credit and tying it in with the, techno the expanding pudding of science and technology coming together. So hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on, you can't use science. You can't use science technology to explain the scientific revolution, can you? Yes, it absolutely is the explanation of the scientific revolution. 
funds started to be poured into science and technology because you, got, it was a better, surplus you got a better return from it. Okay. Well, I, I, yeah, okay, I'm yeah. happy with that. Yeah. I yeah. thought you were saying that because science and technology was better, we had the scientific revolution. No, that, this I thought is, you were using a circular No, argument. no, no. This is why we got yep. the science. Right. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Okay. So I think we should leave it there because okay. the next chapter is all about that. Now, my last question, which you weren't aware that I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. is can the rise of the Jewish God, Yahweh, if we want to call him that, mm-hmm. as the main monotheistic God in the world today be explained by the use of memes? Yeah, isn't that an interesting one? Um, and I would say this is one of your, your great hows, that yes, it can be explained by the use of memes. Tick. That's the answer, yes. Right. <laughs> However, I would point out that it's probably possible to also construct some alternative answers which also probably can't be proven to be wrong and may well also be true. Yeah, okay. Well, you've got it over complicated it now. Well, I'm, um, I'm very good at that. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah. So, yeah. my... But, but the answer to your question is, can the rise be explained in this way? The answer is yes. Yes. So... In my little mind, um, and I think Dawkins might make this argument in The Selfish Gene, we'll find out when we get to that book, Mm -hmm. but um, the fact that the Jewish God was jealous Ah. and also punished you if you didn't worship him, these were two very powerful forces that kept the Jews in line worshipping. So, for example, if you had a God that was happy for you to worship any God you wanted and you would get rewarded for worshipping other gods, then that meme then pushes you towards worshipping other gods. But the, but the meme within Judaism incentivates you to stick with Yahweh. Right. Um, who was, of course, at that stage a very local god who was only interested in looking after the Jewish people, well, um, which at this stage has been reduced to a remnant of a couple of tribes at best. Um. <clears throat> This is a retrospective writing of history which happened on the return from Babylon. Um, What I'm saying, therefore, is yes, we can certainly use memes as an explanation for the rise of the Jewish God. It doesn't mean it's the correct explanation. It just means we can use it as an explanation. Okay. Um, That's it. It's uh, astonishingly short. Yeah, so you get two two I... I'm going to give you today. So that's two times the square root of minus one. Okay. So So I think that is a negative number. (laughs) No, it's not a negative number because it's it's a completely imaginary number. It's an imaginary number, but if I can only manage to multiply it with another imaginary number, then it becomes negative. I'm I'm (laughs) going to hide nothing here. I'll I'll leave you you to do that afterwards. Um, All right, so so we're done for the day. A bit of a short one today, Um, although we went a bit longer than I thought we were going to. And thanks for your time, buddy. And I shall see you on, we always know when, we just never know where. So we'll see you on the flip-flop. All right. Elbow bump. Bye.